Hey there, Sports History fan. Arnie Chapman here from the Sports History Network. Now, before you jump into this episode, I wanted to share with you an exciting giveaway we have going on with Homefield Apparel. We have a digital $50 gift card to homefieldapparel.com for one lucky fan of the Sports History Network. All you got to do is head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways to sign up. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash giveaways. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hello, old sports, and welcome to part two of the year-end in-memoriam podcast of the Hello, Old Sports podcast on the Sports History Network. This is the second of three episodes that we are recording to close out the year in which we will honor the lives and careers of many of the key sports figures that passed away in the year 2020. I am joined, as always, by my co-host, Andrew Newman. Andrew, how are you? I am doing well, Dan. I'm here in New York waiting for a blizzard to begin out my window, so it's possible that as of this moment, as I'm looking at my grass and the road out in front of my building, it's possible by the time we've recorded this that uh, several inches of snow have fallen. So it could be a, an interesting backdrop as we're, as we're recording this episode out my window. Very fitting for an end-of-the-year episode, I would say. Very poetic, yes, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> and uh, white often does represent death in uh, poetry and literature. Black so. represented death. <laughs> a little bit of a Sopranos inside joke there, but uh, and that's a, a a younger sibling and an older sibling as well. <laughs> yes, although I think uh, the difference in intelligence between you and I is a little bit closer than the I difference. Think, I don't think I have much in common with. AJ Soprano, but I don't think you have much in common with Meadow Soprano either. I guess a more to an extent. <laughs> That's a good point. None of my uh, former uh, significant others have ever been killed in the housing projects in Bhutan. So, yes. I'm sorry? As far as you know. <laughs> so, this is going to be the second of these episodes. We started this last week. Part one of the series was put out on Thursday the 17th, and this one will actually air on Christmas Eve. So Merry Christmas to you all, and hope you're having a wonderful holiday, and as many folks are traveling less than they have for Christmas in previous years, let the Hello Old Sports podcast be your Christmas and holiday companion for this year. So for those of you who may not be familiar, what we're doing here is just we started with January 1st, and we're just going through chronologically the list of all of the individuals who were particularly noteworthy, and I'm sure we left some out, but all of the individuals that we found who passed away this year and whose lives we thought were worth commemorating for just a few minutes here. I'd like to also thank our colleagues on the Sports History Network, several of them for participating in this episode and in the previous episode as well as the next one i've recorded brief interviews with uh four of our colleagues and you'll hear them drop in throughout the episode when we get to the right place chronologically and also try to add in some sound clips and that type of thing that give an idea of key moments or whatever in the careers of many of these 
individuals. So we left off with Don Shula, who passed away on May the 4th. And I think we're ready to pick right up. Angie, did you have anything to add before we got started? No. Um, you know, I, I was sort of looking over the ones we're planning on getting to this week and uh, some of these folks I have some vivid memories of or, you know, some, some definite thoughts on and then some um, familiar with sort of from a historical sense and then some I sent me looking to, to learn a little bit more because I didn't know very much at all. So I'm, I'm interested in sort of covering the wide array of folks and also a wide array of my previous knowledge of them. So. All right, so why don't we kick it right off and talk about Bob Watson, who was born in 1946 and passed away on May 14th. Watson began his major league career with the Houston Astros, where he was named an all-star twice. During his time in Houston, he was credited with scoring the one millionth run in Major League Baseball history, which entitled him to a prize of $10,000, as well as one million Tootsie Rolls. He later joined the Yankees, where he played in the 1981 World Series, and hit two home runs in a loss to the Dodgers. After retiring, Watson served as general manager of the Houston Astros and New York Yankees. In 1996, he became the first African-American general manager to win a World Series championship. So, Watson, I remember Watson as the Yankees GM, and if you want to put it in kind of a weird footnote, Bob Watson is the last Yankees general manager. He was the last one prior to the current one. Yeah. And hasn't been the general manager since 1997. You know, a bit of a groundbreaking guy or a barrier-breaking guy in terms of he was, I believe, the second African-American general manager when he was named the GM of the Astros. It says here, uh, after following the Bill Lucas of the Atlanta Braves, I'm sure this will come up in other episodes, but there was sort of the various barriers for sports figures and in baseball specifically for African-Americans to break first, it was being able to play. And then it was, you know, having us being able to sort of go past the certain, the soft quota that a lot of teams had in the early fifties for how many you could have. And then being a pitcher or, you know, field manager and then general manager. And at every step, it was sort of another barrier. So Watson was one of the early guys to run a front office. We've just recently seen with the Miami Marlins where Christine Ng, I believe is how she pronounces her name. I want to make sure I get that right. Becoming the first female general manager. And here we are 30 years earlier talking about Watson being the second African-American general manager. I will always, you know, just being my age and growing up where I grew up, I remember him as the GM of the Yankees for that first championship team in 96. I've read books on the 96 team where I guess Steinbrenner sort of soured on him fairly quickly and he was became a bit of a marginalized guy within the front office in uh, in the Yankees. And that's one of the reasons he was only there for a couple of years, but still was a part of putting together that championship team in 96 and, you know, has a ring as a general manager. And was named executive of the year in 1996. I believe that was an AL only award. I don't think, I think so. He was the AL executive of the year in 1996 for putting together that 96 Yankees team, not only before the season trading for Tino Martinez and, signing David Cohn to a long-term contract and that type of thing, 
But also, if you and I'm sure at some point we'll do an episode specifically on the '96 Yankees. But the roster that the '96 Yankees started with, and the one that they went to the postseason with, is two were two were two very different rosters. And I think one time I counted it. I think something like ten of the Yankee players who were on the roster in the world series were not on the team to start the season, whether that was trading for Cecil Fielder, whether that was bringing in Charlie Hayes as a free agent, uh, whether that was some of the guys that they brought in, in the bullpen and Daryl back. They, now they brought Daryl back and that's actually an interesting story. That was sort of the next thing I was going to touch on. So, Strawberry had been on the team in 95. Showalter didn't really like to use him all that much. And then in 96, they decided to not bring him back, not offer him a contract, and he ended up playing in the independent league. And bringing Strawberry back, that was a Steinbrenner move. In fact, Watson Mm -hmm. was dead set against it. And then there was a press, not a press conference, but there was a time when he was meeting with the press and somebody asked him about Strawberry and Bob Watson just kept repeating over and over again, he doesn't fit, he doesn't fit, he doesn't fit. Steinbrenner goes ahead and makes the deal for Strawberry anyway. And in the Bill Madden's biography of Steinbrenner, he writes how that was when Watson sort of realized that maybe he was not being consulted and that his position as general manager was sort of a tenuous one, even though he stuck around for the rest of the 97 season. And Bill Madden writes about how for the last several months of his tenure as GM, Watson would come into the office, take off his coat, go into his office, close the door, and just sit at his desk watching soap operas for most of the afternoon. So it was very funny because after the 95 season, the Yankees, they fire Walter and they sort of force out Gene Michael. And the thing that was always said as a Yankee official, whether it was a former manager, former coach, former general manager, somebody in the front office, once you were fired of your official position, Steinbrenner would almost listen to you more. I mean, Billy Connors, who was the um, pitching coach and got fired in the middle of 95 by Steinbrenner, then went down to Tampa and as sort of a roving pitching instructor and then became one of Steinbrenner's closest confidants. And the same thing sort of happened with Gene Michael, who Steinbrenner forces out a GM, hires Bob Watson, and then just goes to Gene Michael over and over again for advice and cuts Bob Watson out. So it was really a crazy situation in the front office. It's something that Watson really couldn't stand for more than a couple of years. And Brian Cashman, who was his assistant general manager for those two years and has been the general manager of the Yankees ever since always cites Watson as a mentor of his. So his legacy lives on in the Yankee front office, even though he was only there for a couple of years. Just to to go back to his playing days, just what I found here about the whole millionth run thing that I think is kind of neat was that he, um, he scored that run. He scored from second on a three run home run. So he was the lead runner on a three-run home run. I guess this had become a big thing where they were putting updates out throughout every ballpark in the country. Can we just point out for a second that this millionth run thing, that they were almost certainly incorrect about it? Yeah, because how many years later have we found out that, you know, oh, well, they counted Ty Cobb's game twice, or they did this, and 
Yeah, and I mean, when you talk about stats going back to how far they were going back to, there's no way that they were right. But just just to show that it actually was a little bit of a big deal for these guys, for some, you know, I guess because of the the money involved and the Tootsie Rolls involved, um, it was known that the 900, the one before a million, 999,999 had already been scored with sponsored updates being provided by every ballpark. During the, despite the lack of in-game urgency because it was a home run, Watson ran at full speed from second on a home run to score, and it said he's crossed home plate approximately four seconds before Dave Concepcion, who had just homered in Cincinnati and was also racing around the base paths. So in two different games, you had guys running at full speed on home runs to be the one millionth run scored. Just kind of a neat footnote that I guess he did care about because he wanted to be the guy. But in the account that I read, I saw that he actually ended up giving away both the money and the Tootsie Rolls to charity. So... He must not have cared too much. But what charity do you give a million Tootsie Rolls away to? Who needs Tootsie Rolls? He gave half to the Boy Scouts and half to the Girl Scouts. I guess. No, that's what he did. No, but I mean, I guess do it. <laughs> I guess it's better than keeping them. <laughs> he probably, if, if he had kept them, can you imagine if you just kept them for yourself your whole life? <laughs> like, Tootsie Rolls are not like potato chips or pretzels where you can like eat a bunch of them. Like even if you love Tootsie Rolls, as you they get chewy and then you they stick to your teeth and they take a while to eat. Like you can't eat forty Tootsie Rolls in one sitting. So well, also to eat a million, they must go bad eventually. And plus, can you imagine just what a pain in the ass it is just to unwrap them? Yeah, that's true as well. So good job at good job out of Bob Watson to give. <laughs> Give those Tootsie Rolls away to charity. <laughs> they, they, they probably did not honor him when he died because he, they were still annoyed that he foisted all these Tootsie Rolls on him. <laughs> and the only other thing I would mention about Watson is you don't think of him or really of that 1981 team as part of the sort of late 70s, early 80s dynasty. It was a couple years afterwards since the last time they'd won the World Series, they had gone through several more managers, including hiring and firing Billy Martin and Bob Lemon once more each in those two or three seasons. And But this was a little bit of a different team. Chris Chambliss was gone. Mickey Rivers was gone. It was Reggie's last year. You had Rick Cerrone, Dave Rigetti, some of the guys who'd be on the team in the 80s. It was Dave Winfield's, I think his first, a different team. And Watson was sort of a combination first baseman and DH. I think he actually hit a home run in that World Series. And Munson had obviously passed away too from the last championship teams. Why don't we move on to somebody completely different? Well, it'd be weird if we moved on to somebody who was this. Jerry Sloan, born in 1942, passed away on May 22nd. Born and raised in Illinois, Sloan entered the NBA with the Baltimore Bullets before being selected in the 1966 expansion draft by his hometown Chicago Bulls. Known as a defensive specialist, Sloan was a two-time All-Star, and in 1978, his number four jersey was the first ever retired by the Bulls. In 1988, he was named head coach of the Utah Jazz, a position he remained in for 23 years. Sloan brought the team to the playoffs in each of his first 15 seasons, led by a Hall of Fame combo of John Stockton and Carl Malone. The team lost the NBA Finals to the Chicago Bulls in both 1997 and 1998. He was inducted into the Hall of Fame in 2009 while still an active coach. So 
I think we'll probably want to spend most of his, our time on his coaching career. As a player, he was best known for his defense, like you mentioned. And the history of the Chicago Bulls before Michael Jordan, there's really not a lot there. They didn't even come into the league until the mid-1960s. But they were a perennial playoff team in the 1970s during the time that Jerry Sloan was there. And for his time, he was considered a pretty good player. All-star a couple times, a really good defensive player, NBA all-defensive team, that type of thing. His number is retired by the Bulls, which a lot of people, I think, don't realize. And then, you know, plus the fact that he got to play almost his entire career except for one season for his hometown team. So he was a pretty good player. But obvi- And he actually coached the Bulls for a couple years, a few years after his playing career had ended. But obviously he's best known for all of those years in Utah where from 1988 to 2003 they made the playoffs every single year with Sloan, John Stockton, and Carl Malone. Yeah, and I... I really liked those those jazz teams as a kid. That's how I actually I think I think the first time I ever found out he was a player was watching, you know, those years, playoff games or finals games, and my father saying something like, Oh, he was a great player. And I was like, Oh, he played. I had no idea. Those jazz teams, and I think some of it was just, you know, you're younger, and especially when we were kids, sort of the starter jacket era where you'd have a million different teams and pennants and things. And then for me, it was always like video games, like especially when I would play with you because you were the older sibling, so you'd be player one. So a lot of times you'd be the Giants or the Knicks or the Yankees, and I'd have to find a different team to be. And, you know, a lot of kids our age, it's like, okay, you liked Michael Jordan and the Bulls, but I never did, and especially as a Knicks fan, I never did. So I kind of gravitated towards those jazz teams and... I remember the. I really liked their uniforms, the purple and gold, the original jazz uniforms. And I think the first year I got really big into the jazz was that was because of that. And then the next year they switched to sort of like the mountain view. You know, Sloan. Obviously, what you remember is those Stockton and Malone teams in the late '90s, especially those two teams that got to the finals and you know, gave the Bulls as good a series as anybody else in the NBA Finals did, a couple of six-game series. Malone was the MVP of the league the one year. But then even after those guys left, they dipped a little bit, but then he brought them back to a couple of playoff uh, appearances with, first it was Andre Kirilenko, and then later on with, um, I, I know they got to a Western Conference Finals one year, but, you know, just sort of the consistency every year in the, late 80s and 90s to be a playoff team. And they were rarely a seven or an eight seed. They were usually a, you know, a number two or three team, usually getting at least to the second round or the Western Conference finals and getting to a few NBA finals. So that kind of longevity, even with two Hall of Fame players, to not have a bad year or a couple of bad years was certainly, you know, really an impressive run. And a guy who, I don't know how long the Jazz had been in Utah before Jerry Sloan took over, but I'm sure at the point he left Utah, he'd been their head coach for 80% of their time in Utah or something like that. They probably moved sometime in the mid-70s, and he came there in 88. So, yeah, he was there for for quite a bit of time. And like I said, took over in 88, and for the next 13 or so seasons, it was him, it was Malone, and it was Stockton every single year, at least making it into the playoffs. A lot of 60-win seasons, and 
they probably gave Jordan's Bulls the biggest run for their money in the finals. It, it would probably either be them or Phoenix, but I think they lost to them in six games both times. So in the one it w- year it was two to two. I know the one year it was three one, and they won game five. But the one year it was two to two. It, those Jordan Bulls teams—it's weird. Most of them were six games. You know, the Blazers one was was a decently tough series, but yeah, I think they definitely those two years. Ninety seven, I think, was the year they gave them a really good year finals and 98 i actually thought they were better than them but they obviously you know well that's the whole for those of you who've seen the last dance that's the story of that whole 98 97 98 bulls team and the story there was that the bulls kind of limped in to the finals pippen was unhappy and had been hurt for most of the year rodman was after three years rodman had very much his eyes had started to wander and you could tell he was getting bored with the NBA and with basketball. So the jazz did really have a real chance to take them out that year. Um, and the, the last thing I wanted to say on Jerry Sloan, and I, this is more than just him, but he's a big part of it. Obviously having Stockton and Malone there didn't hurt, but you need to recognize just how difficult it is to put together a competitive NBA team that plays in Salt Lake City, Utah. I've read articles in the last few years and, you know, they're actually usually a pretty competitive franchise even now, but just, you know, first of all, when you talk about an NBA team, especially back then, most of them are African American. They're from, you know, in maybe the South or, you know, big cities in Detroit or wh- whatever. They're not from a place like Utah. And, you know, this article, which was a more contemporary article that I read, but it was talking about some of the difficulties and they highlighted a few things about, you know, haircuts and soul food and things like that that were important to a lot of players. So, Having that level of success that Sloan had anywhere was impressive, but he also had to be, you know, they had to be so good that they could entice not necessarily superstars, but decent free agents to want to sign there. And the fact that they did that with a certain level of success points to just how good Sloan was and that they were able to work with what is really a handicap, especially back then, which was that you weren't going to get, there were going to be guys who right away were just not going to go play in Utah because they didn't want to. He really kind of lucked out with Stockton and Malone because Stockton, obviously very much not black. So a lot of those concerns didn't apply. And then Carl Malone is somebody who's kind of a, a little bit of an independent thinker. He's a, an outdoorsman, that type of thing. So both on and off the court, it was really kind of the perfect pairing to have a long-term impact on the Jazz. Exactly. All right, so we're talking about coaches, and why don't we move on to another coach, which is Eddie Sutton, who was born in 1936 and passed away on May 23rd. He elected to the Hall of Fame just this year. Sutton is one of only eight Division I coaches to have more than 800 career wins. From 1977, while coaching at Arkansas, Kentucky and Oklahoma State, he made the NCAA tournament in every season but one. He reached the Final Four three times in his career and was named Coach of the Year twice by the Associated Press. So I don't know a lot about Eddie Sutton. I thought that it was worth mentioning him because you figure 800 career wins. He's in some pretty rare company as far as all-time wins 
in NCAA men's basketball history. So Mike Krzyzewski, number one, 1,132. Jim Beheim, number two, 946. Bob Knight, three at 902. Jim Calhoun, four at 889. Dean Smith, five at 879. Adolph Rupp, six at 876. Roy Williams, seven, 871. And then actually it looks like Sutton is right in Huggins and, and Jim Phelan and Rolly Massimino are ahead of Huggins. So I guess maybe those guys passed him since then. But I, th- I think that those other guys, maybe some of their wins are not all D1 wins. Yeah, Rolly Massimino here looks like it's got his Longwood State years and things like that. So it's weird because I started D1 winning as head coaches, but they must be including non-D1 wins in that. Yeah. Um, so anyway, but all of those names are college basketball immortals. We mentioned a few guys who have names on either courts or arenas there. Adolph Rupp, Dean Smith, Mike Krzyzewski. I'm sure when Jim Beheim is done, his name will be on the court at Syracuse. So Sutton, you go back to the Big 8 conference and that was or the excuse me the big eight and the southwest conference conferences that no longer exist or have been sort of replaced and was not doing it at real outside of that five-year period with kentucky not really at programs you'd consider huge blue blood programs oklahoma state arkansas creighton you know to have that level of success at schools like that over that period of time is remarkable Best team was probably in 94-95 with Oklahoma State. They were led by Bryant Reeves, big country, who later went on to star. Or star might be an overstatement, but later went on to be one of the top players on the early days of the Vancouver Grizzlies. It's probably also worth noting that due to recruiting scandals, when he was at Kentucky in the 80s, Kentucky was almost hit with the death penalty. So I feel like almost every college coach you talk about from that era has some sort of major scandal at some point in their career, and Sutton was no different. And just think, if they had been hit with the death penalty, you never would have had all those great years under Patino and then Tubby Smith. So interesting to think that how some of his misdeeds came close to knocking out one of the most storied programs in the country. Looks like he's finished his record at Oklahoma State when he finished was 368 and 151. So more than double wins than losses. So if you think about that in the context of a year, that's better than 20 and 10. I know seasons were a little shorter back then, but it's basically a 20 win season every single year. All right, so we haven't talked about too many with the exception of Kobe, and then we talked about Sloan, but that was more of as a coach. There haven't been that many NBA players discussed so far. So, Andrew, do you want to go ahead and read our next honoree? Sure. Wes Unseld, born in 1946, passed away on June 2nd. Unseld and Wilt Chamberlain are the only two players in NBA history to win the MVP and Rookie of the Year awards in the same season. Listed at 6'7", Unseld is probably the smallest great center in NBA history. He is particularly well-known for his ability to perform the unappreciated tasks on a basketball court, rebounding, pick-setting, and outlet passing. Unseld played his entire career with the Bullets franchise and led the team to its only championship in 1978. So as somebody who's lived in Washington for most of the last 
15 years, I can attest to the status that Wes Unseld has among the basketball fans of Washington, D.C. And this was with the Baltimore Bullets and then the Capitol Bullets and then the Washington Bullets from 1968 to 1981. Came into the league in 68, 69 in sort of a very transitional sort of time period. It was Russell's last year. It was the year before Kareem would come to the NBA. I believe it was Wilt's first year on the Lakers. And he is one of the only two players in NBA history to win the MVP and the Rookie of the Year award in the same season. Played on four NBA Finals teams and played with a lot of really good, great players in his decade or so with the Bullets, whether it was Earl of Pearl Monroe early on or whether it was Elvin Hayes later. But he was the constant he was the leader. He was the person most responsible for bringing home the only NBA championship in DC history. He was the MVP of the finals that year. And he was the guy who was known for a lot of things that nobody else is known for. I mean, everybody talks about him as the best outlet passer in the history of the NBA. Well, who would be second? You you probably can't even come up with a name. So Mm -hmm not a guy who you hear a ton about when it comes to stats, but a guy who did a lot of really intangible things was very much respected, averaged a double double for his career, 3.9 assists a game, which is high for a center and somebody who was respected by his peers almost to a man. Averaged 14 rebounds a game over a career, you know, over a 13-year career or whatever it was from 69 to 81. And actually only played until he was 34, which, think about those numbers. The averages would have been lower, but the the raw numbers would have been higher. Had some years here, you know, looking right in as he, as he came in the league. And his first four years, he averaged 18, and I'll round off the decimals, but 18, 17, 17, 17, and 16 boards a game and then even after that averaged more than 10 rebounds a game every year except one and that was close you mentioned the assists for a big man you know as he got later in his career the scoring dropped off kind of steeply but you know was like you said probably the best player on those bullets teams all throughout right yeah definitely and he was the constant by 78 i think alvin hayes was probably a bigger offensive threat and a probably a slightly better player, but Elvin Hayes could also be kind of a head case at times. So Unseld was not only the team leader, but the steady presence. Kevin Lockery, who was one of his teammates on the bullets in the early years said, quote, when West came to the bullets, my scoring average jumped from 14 to 22, all because of him. He could grab a rebound and throw it all the way down court before it hit the ground. All of a sudden I became Paul Warfield a wide receiver catching passes ahead of the field. Only a handful of bullets slash wizards, even though they're all bullets with their numbers retired. They're all great players, but he's one of the only, only the few along with Earl Monroe, Elvin Hayes, Gus Johnson, Wes Unseld. And then how's that pronounced? Phil Chenier? Phil Chenier. Yep. Chenier. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, 
probably the best player in that franchise's history, I would imagine, considering he was, you know, Monroe was there and then went to the to the Knicks. I, I would imagine it's it's probably unselled, right? It definitely is. And I should note also that Phil Chenier's number, while retired as a player, was only retired just this past year or maybe the year before and was largely done not just because of his contributions as a player, but because he was a broadcaster for the team for something like 25 years. So, yeah, the picture of him, the rest of them, it's all pictures of them in their playing days. And then this picture of him is in a suit from probably two years ago. So I guess I should have known that. Before we move on from Munsell, just one more quote from another teammate, Mitch Kupchak, who later went on to be a very successful executive with the Lakers, but who played with Unselled on the Bullets, says, Unselled was the consummate team basketball player. His only objective was to win. Statistics were never important to him. You can't begin to imagine what he did to make his teammates better. Set picks, made outlet passes, guarded the bigger center. He was the MVP of the finals. So, yeah, great player, somewhat underappreciated, a center who was about 6'6". So a lot to a lot to like and a lot to commemorate about Wes Unseld, especially if you're somebody like me from the D.C. area. Why don't we move on and talk about Ken Riley, who was born in 1947 and passed away on June 7th. A cornerback, Riley spent his entire 15-year career with the Cincinnati Bengals. A three-time All-Pro, Riley was fourth all-time in interceptions when he retired after the 1983 season. After retiring, he was the head coach at Florida A&M, his alma mater, for eight seasons, and finished in the top 25 twice. Many believe that Riley is one of the most glaring omissions in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and I should note that his son, Ken Riley Jr., has been a guest on a couple of podcasts on the Sports History Network, including the Football History Dude, which is our founder Arnie that's his podcast and Ken Riley was Ken Riley Jr. was on the podcast earlier this year talking about his father's life a, a guy who played in a city a, a smaller city by NFL and by professional terms and a player who really is kind of did a lot of it out of the spotlight but somebody who a lot of people think should be in the Hall of Fame yeah that was my first thought was, yeah, you wonder if he wasn't on Cincinnati. You know, obviously he was on the team towards the end of his career that, that went to that Super Bowl, the first one against the 49ers. But, you know, I just look, sixth round pick in 1969 out of Florida A&M was actually a quarterback in college. And it says Paul Brown decided to convert Riley to a cornerback position, three-time All-Pro in 75, 76, and then in 1983, which was, I believe, the last year of his career, was an All-Pro again. He was never selected to play in the Pro Bowl, which is kind of crazy. It says the AFL All-Star Game or the Pro Bowl, which is his rookie year would have been the last year of the AFL. So just crazy to think that he was never selected to a Pro Bowl despite being an All-Pro three different times. I won't lie that I knew anything about Ken Riley before I started looking things up for this podcast, but, um, you know, was the top, one of the top defensive backs. And this, this is where I, I sometimes talk about when, you know, you hear people say like, Oh, those Steelers and Cowboys teams when that they played in the Super Bowl in 1978 and between the two teams, they have 17 hall of famers. And it's like, and I, mean, I just pulled that number out of the air, but like you go, 
some of those guys are probably there because they were on those teams and not vice versa. And then you look at a guy like like this and you go, probably doesn't get the due he deserves because of the team he was on. Which it's, it's, Sometimes it's easier where they throw a seventh or eighth player from the steel curtain into the hall of fame, as opposed to, Hey, this guy really toiled in obscurity for a long time, but was the lone bright spot on some of those teams and really should be in the hall of fame. Yeah. We talked about that last week with Chris Dolman about how maybe he'd have been heard of a little more if he was played on a team that had gone to the super bowl or won a championship or anything like that. And I think while Riley did go to the super bowl, I think he certainly, falls in that greater category because he didn't play in a big city and he didn't play on a really successful team. Maybe he gets overlooked about a little bit and it is sort of hard to quantify defensive backs, especially from the seventies when there weren't as many statistics. He was another guy who did some returning in his last season. He had 36 years of age. He had eight interceptions, two touchdowns and two fumble recoveries. So a guy who did it all the way to the end and was a leader of that, Bengals team that finally made it to the Super Bowl in 1981. Tums presents the Bengals all-time neutralizer. At the end of the 1983 season, Cincinnati said goodbye to one of the most punishing defensive players in team history. Ken Riley lived up to his name by striking quick and often. Beginning in 1969 and continuing through 15 illustrious seasons, the Rattler patrolled the Bengals' secondary with his own brand of venom. made a smooth transition to cornerback in the NFL. And number 13 was nothing but bad luck for pro passers. Sixty-five enemy passes ended up in Riley's arms, making him by far the Bengals' career interception leader. Riley may have been most dangerous once he got his hands on the ball, as he compiled nearly 600 interception return yards and scored five career touchdowns. Fifteen seasons, the Cincinnati secondary was a snake pit for opposing quarterbacks, largely due to a man they called the Rattler, Ken Riley, the Bengals' all-time neutralizer. Why don't we move on and talk about another football player from the 1970s? Sure. 
Jim Kick, born in 1946, died on June 20th. Kick was drafted by the Miami Dolphins in the 1968 draft and was an all-star running back in his first two years. He and his close friend and backfield mate Larry Zonka were known as Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid for their off-field antics. At his best in big games, Kick scored a rushing touchdown in each of the Dolphins' Super Bowl victories in Super Bowl seven and eight. We talked last week about Shula and his great Dolphin teams of the 70s. Jim Kick was a guy who his best years statistically were in the early part of his career. He made his first two Pro Bowls, uh, his only two Pro Bowls in his first two years, 68 and 69. Stats are nothing that's going to jump out at you, although he, I did, I believe it looks like he did lead the AFL in rushing TDs in 1969, but he was part of that backfield with Larry Zonka, who's a Hall of Famer, and also Mercury Morris, who I think in a lot of ways, as the early 70s dawn, kind of pushed kick out of his starting role, but probably best known, first of all, for scoring touchdowns in both of the team's Super Bowl wins, and then also for his friendship with Larry Zonka and their reputations as these uh, kind of free spirits on those Dolphin teams, including a Sports Illustrated cover where Larry Zonka was very sort of surreptitiously giving the middle finger to the camera when the photograph was snapped. Yeah. The, as a, the thing that kind of jumps the most out at me looking at kick is that he was five eleven, So tall or, you know, tall, maybe not by NFL standards, but by NFL and 1970s standards, he was, or let's say average height, you know, 214 pounds as a running back. I mean, and it says known as more of an effective inside power runner at 214 pounds. So not hard to see maybe why his production trailed off in later years. He might have been replaced by Mercury Morris. His production might not have trailed off because he was replaced by Mercury Morris. He may have been phased out for Mercury Morris because running a physical style weighing 214 pounds probably aged his body tremendously, especially back then. He also, along with Zonka and one or two others from those Dolphin teams, was among the first NFL players in the mid-70s who jumped to the World Football League. And this was a weird situation where these guys were drafted in early 1974, and it was kind of known throughout the 74 season that they were going to be leaving the NFL for the 1975 season, and it was Kick as well as Larry Zonka and Paul Warfield, the wide receiver, who's another Hall of Famer in the World Football League, only lasted for a couple of years, and eventually these guys were back in the NFL. So Jim Kick, probably somebody who his statistics uh, and his on-field production doesn't really give you anything to write home about, but as a key figure on those 70s Dolphins teams, somebody who's been remembered even years and years after his playing career ended. 
and I'm seeing this here that following his, this is again, I'm just reading from the Wikipedia, but following his brief disappointing but lucrative detour to the WFL, Kick stated that he wanted to join Zonka with the New York Giants, but head coach Bill Arnsparger, who had been Miami's defensive coordinator, was opposed because he was concerned Kick would be a bad influence on Zonka. So the Giants almost reunited that backfield in 1977, I guess it would have been, or 1976. Now, knowing what I knew about the Giants at that time, it would not have really made any difference, but just kind of interesting that they still wanted to sort of reprise their buddy cop movie. And then just another thing as I'm looking at here, it says, so he was with Denver for a while in 76 and then 77 and was released during the 77 regular season. So missed, missed out on the Broncos kind of surprise run to the Super Bowl. And then in parentheses, it says on the same day he was released by the Broncos, his house burned down and he got divorced. <laughs> I'm sure there's a whole bunch of stuff I could read on that, but I just happened to cross it. That's a, a rough day. Um, yeah. And he says after football, he became a private investigator for the Broward County public defender's office, which is not a job. A lot of guys go into after, uh, after um, a professional football career of some distinguishment. Yeah. So a free spirit and somebody who it sounds like remains sort of a unique guy, up until the very end of his life and part of one of the more famous backfields along with Zonka and Morris in the history of the NFL. Why don't we, we've been doing a lot of coaches and managers, even Wes Unseld, who was a player, was also a coach later on. Ken Riley was a college coach. We talked about Watson, who was later a general manager. And why don't we move to baseball now and talk about somebody who was known almost exclusively as a baseball manager. John McNamara, born in 1932, passed away on July 28th. McNamara managed six different clubs in the major leagues between 1969 and 1996, often managing teams just before or just after they were at the top of the league. He is best known for managing the Boston Red Sox in 1986 and taking the team within one out of winning the World Series against the New York Mets. McNamara was strongly criticized for two decisions in Game 6 thought to have cost the Red Sox the game and, by extension, the series. Removing Roger Clemens in the eighth inning and leaving Bill Buckner in the game for the bottom of the tenth inning. So, John McNamara. So... Much of his legacy is about 1986 and his decisions in that World Series. Before we get to that, just to sort of run down his managerial career, manages the Oakland Athletics for two years in 69 and 70, and then by 72, they are the great A's teams of the 70s that win three championships in a row. Reggie Jackson, Catfish Hunter, Raleigh Fingers... Bert Campanaris, Vita Blue, that whole team. So Dick Williams is the manager. Dick Williams was the manager for the first two years. And then even though they'd won the World Series, hated Charlie Finley so much that he quit the team, I believe during the World Series. I mean, he stayed on for the rest of the World Series, but he quit the team either during the World Series or immediately after. And then they had a different manager, Alvin Dark, in 74. But yeah, Dick Williams. Hall of Famer was the manager for the first few years. Then he goes to San Diego for a few years. Then in 79, he gets the job with the Reds and manages the Reds for four years. And that's only three years after the Reds with Sparky Anderson with the big red machine had been into the World Series and won two in a row in 75 and 76. 
and it still has many of the same players, Pete Rose, Joe Morgan, those guys. And so sort of presides over the final days of the big red machine. Then he goes to California to the angels manages them in 83 and 84. And by 86, they're a really good team and a team that he ends up running into in 86 in the ALCS when it's the Red Sox against the angels. And then we'll talk about his Red Sox tenure. And then in 90 and 91, he manages the Cleveland Indians and they're sort of right on the cusp of the team that they'd become the Mike Hargrove years with bell and Alomar and Manny Ramirez and that 95 team, which won a hundred games in a 140 some odd game season. So he seems to get to these teams or leave them either right before or right after they were really good. You know, and it's, it's kind of funny to think. And certainly game six, he's got his part in what happened in that game. shares some responsibility for what happened in that game, but they're one out away from winning a world series. If whoever the first guy on the Mets to get a hit was, if that guy doesn't make as solid a contact and dribbles the ball to the shortstop, and it's a you know routine ground out. John McNamara is the manager of the dominant 1986 Red Sox who ended the 68-year championship drought, brought a title to Boston, you know, and with doing absolutely nothing differently is, I don't know about a legend, but is a huge figure in Boston sports history and things play out the way they do. They blow a big lead the next night. And now he's known as sort of a major chapter up there with, uh, you know, Grady Little in 2003. As, That's the analog right there is uh, him with Grady Little. And and to be fair, Little's decision was much worse because the implosion had already started, um, which we'll, we can talk about that some other time and I would enjoy it. Um, <laughs> but, you know, it's just kind of weird to think about that where it's like it, he literally, whatever, whether taking Clemens out was a mistake or, or, or whatever you think about that, if one thing goes another way, he's remembered as the guy who bought the Red Sox a championship for the first time in 68 years at the time. So two decisions. He, both in game six of this 1986 World Series. And the first of these decisions is the decision to pull Roger Clemens out of the game. What a lot of people viewed as prematurely. There um, has always been the rumor by McNamara, you know, I guess perpetuated by McNamara that Clemens asked out because he had a blister on his hand. And Clemens has denied that. And it doesn't seem like Roger Clemens, but at the same time, if we're being fair, does Roger Clemens deserve a lot of benefit of the doubt for the way most of the rest of his career played out in terms of honesty? Well, that was what I was going to say. Mm-hmm. Asking out of a game early does not seem like Roger Clemens lying after the fact to cover his butt very, very much seems like Roger Clemens. So after seven innings in this game six with the Red Sox leading the game three to two, 
McNamara pulls Clemens, he pinch hits for him, and then they put in Calvin Chiraldi, who eventually goes on to blow the save, take the loss. I'm trying to find here, I don't see it on the box score right in front of me, what Clemens's pitch count was for that game. And I, I know um, even in 86, pitch counts weren't quite as big of a deal, but he, it certainly was believed by many that Clemens could have gone back out there for the eighth inning. But Clemens always insisted that he did not ask out of the game. McNamara always insisted that he did. So who knows what really happened there, but it's something that McNamara maintained until his dying days that Clemens had asked out of that game. And then the other one was pulling or not pulling Bill Buckner out of the game in the ninth inning, which is something that he had done in all seven of the Red Sox previous wins in, and I guess it would have been the 10th inning, not the ninth, because it was an extra inning game. Boston takes the lead in the top of the 10th on a home run by Dave Henderson. And then McNamara leaves Buckner in, does not put in Dave Stapleton, who had been the defensive replacement that he'd always been using throughout that postseason. Stapleton years later said that it would, it was sickening to him because he knew he should have been out there. He called McNamara the worst manager that he ever played for said he didn't even think that he should have been a major league manager. Now, obviously there's some sour grapes there, but I don't know exactly how he justified the decision. The Clemens decision, I think you can at least go one way or the other on, but when you're about to win a world series, you can't let sentimentality get in the way. And I can't think of any other explanation why you would not pull a guy for defensive purposes when you'd done so in the previous seven wins. So the winning run is 
is at second base with two out, three and two to Mookie Wilson. Little roller up along first, behind the bag, it gets through Buckner. Here comes Knight, and the Mets win it. Well, this, I and I'm, I'm looking at this because there's another point I want to bring up from a few days later, but it says that I guess originally he had said, I felt Buckner deserved to be on the field when we won. But years later, in fact, in 2011, he finally responded to Stapleton and said that it wasn't sentiment that caused him to do that. It was that because Stapleton had the nickname of shaky because of his poor defense. Now that rings a little hollow after all of those years when that was how they used Stapleton. The other thing you could mention, and I don't want to just rag on maybe the two worst days of the guy's managerial career, but, and this one isn't his fault at all. Game seven got delayed several days due to, or at least a day due to rain. Game six was on a Saturday night. And then game seven was supposed to be Sunday night, I believe, or game six was a Friday night. It was one of those two. And then there was game seven was delayed a day. Oh yeah, no, it had to be. It was a Saturday night. Game six was because the game seven was the Monday night where the Giants played the Redskins. Yes. So games. So they, since it was delayed a game, McNamara bumped who was scheduled to start in game seven oil can Boyd in favor of starting Bruce Hurst who'd won games one and five for the Red Sox. So it certainly wasn't a, an unjustifiable decision. And Hurst pitched really well for five innings. But they say, also, the decision upset Boyd so much that he began drinking heavily and drank himself to the point where he wasn't able to pitch in game seven. Jesus. A guy who is so upset he's not starting goes out and gets so drunk he can't pitch in game seven of the World Series. That's on him a lot more than it's on the manager. You know, how, how is the guy who got drunk and wasn't able to pitch in game seven of the World Series not the bad guy in that story? Oil Can Boyd, I, I don't know a lot about him, but from what I've heard, he was a very, very unique character, starting with the fact that the guy's nickname was Oil Can. God in what... Well, the fact that his nickname was Oil Can in 1986 and not, you know, 1940, like... That seems like I'm just looking it up. He because I was going to say like, well, Boyd was you know I'm, he was an older pitcher just because his name was Oil. He was 27. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, that's <laughs> that's a very old school nickname. And I think he was known as that. Now that I think of it, because of how injured he was and sort of how creaky. But still, yeah, you, you can't blame John McNamara for that. And unfortunately, for better or worse, because of a couple of those bad bounces of the ball, he's known much more for being sort of. An, inf- an infamous part of Red Sox losing history as opposed to the guy who finally brought the World Series home. Why don't we move on to another baseball figure who unfortunately saw his fair share of losing? Another guy who's unfairly maligned, if we're being obvious, honest about it. Um, Oris Clark, born in 1939, died on August 5th. Clark played second base for the Yankees from 1965 to 1974 during one of the losingest eras in franchise history. Clark was a dependable, if mediocre, player who played at least 143 games seven seasons in a row and twice led the American League in at-bats, including in 1969 when he batted a career-high 285. He had the misfortune of being one of the better players on some of the worst teams in Yankee history, leading many to refer to those years as the Horace Clark era. So... A few things about Horace Clark 
the player and then maybe that'll serve as a little bit of a segue to talk about the era he was a guy first of all he was not born in this country he was born in St. Croix in the Virgin Islands and even today you don't see a lot of major league baseball players coming to baseball from the Virgin Islands durable led the league in at bats in two different seasons in the late sixties and had a, a very interesting knack for breaking up no hitters. He broke up three, no hitters in the ninth inning in his career. He came to the team in 65, which was the year after they had the dynasty ended. They lost to the Cardinals in seven games in 64 played with them. And his last season was 74 Finally, in 74, got traded to the Padres and finished out his career that year with them. And then 75 was the year that Billy Martin came to the team. I believe it was the first year of the New Yankee Stadium. So 76. Oh, 76 was the first year of the New Yankee Stadium. Okay, so there was... In 74 and 75. Okay, that's right. That's right. But 75 mid-year was when they brought Billy Martin in, and then they started to turn things around after that. So he really did span the almost the entire dark era of Yankee history. And it's sort of this time period. So basically what happens is, is all throughout the fifties and the sixties, the Yankees are able to enjoy this just incredibly dominant run really maybe with the exception of the Montreal Canadiens, probably the most dominant run in the history of North American sports. You could say the Arback Celtics, and they certainly won more championships in a row, but there were less teams. It was less competitive and, I, and it didn't last as long. And I know you're saying the fifties and sixties, but really if you look at it on a time frame, it was really an uninterrupted dynasty from the early twenties until 1964. There were years they won less often than other years, but I mean, how what was the longest they went between 1923 and 1962 without winning a championship? 23 to 27, 28 to 32. Did they ever go more than four years? I, no, they they didn't. They never went more than four years, and I they, I don't think I would be willing to bet there probably aren't that many losing seasons from and, 20 to 64 and 28 to 32 is probably definitely the longest they went without winning a pennant. Cause 23 to 27, they won in 26, they won the pennant. Mm-hmm. So it's really a 40 year uninterrupted dynasty, you know, obviously yeah. guest changed, but. So a lot of things happen at once The the farm system becomes depleted. The entire business model of baseball is starting to change. The Yankees had historically been willing to trade away prospects to bring in veteran players, and that sort of finally caught up with them in 64. They sold the team to CBS. The team was sold to CBS in 1964, and CBS probably really had no no business ever running a baseball team. A lot of things I'd probably... Maybe, I don't know, I'd have to look into this more. I don't know if the fact that the Yankees had been so slow to sign black and Hispanic players finally caught up with them in the mid-60s. I, I don't want to say that was definitely a factor but because I just don't know, but that's something else that it's sort of evidence of a sea change in baseball. So 
this is something else that I'm sure we'll do an episode on at some point, but Horace Clark is sort of the first guy to join the team in the wake of the end of that dynasty. Most of the guys, by the time he comes up to the team in 65, most of the guys are still on the team. Elson Howard, Mantle, Maris, Tom Tresh, the infielders, you know, Quebec, Richardson, Boyer. And even, he's... And even, got, even Pepitone, even though he was only in at the tail end, he at least had like sort of the very end of it. He was at least there for the last couple of years of those teams, whereas Clark came in fresh in 65. Yeah, that's exactly right. And he really was the most reliable player on a team that didn't have many reliable players. So it got dubbed the Horace Clark era somewhat unfairly because it wasn't his fault that there weren't better guys around him. Yeah, and to me, I've, there's two things with this. For one, and you've heard me say this before, those can you imagine if you're a fan of any other team and you hear about the Dark Ages Yankees, which first of all was 12 years between a pennant, and second of all, it was really three bad years. So 65, after having won the pennant four straight years from 60 to 64, 65, they go down to 77 and 85. 66, they go 70 and 89. 67, they're 72 and 90. Unquestionably, three bad years. By the next year in 68, they were four games over 500. The next year, they were 500. They were 80 and 81 because they didn't make up their last game. Then the the year after that, they won 93 games and they were above 500 the rest of the way. So it was really three years that you could objectively qualify as bad and then they were just like a decent team, you know, at a time when you needed to be really good to make the playoffs. And to Clark specifically, and I, I remember reading this with um, Odell Beckham a few years ago with the Giants. Now, Odell Beckham was a lot better of a player on the Giants than Horace Clark was relative to the Yankees. But somebody made a point, which is like, there's always this thing on bad teams where you blame the few good players you have on the bad teams as opposed to everybody else. And the reason I think Horace Clark gets kind of screwed in that is like, I get it. The Horace Clark years, when you compare the previous 40 years were the Lou Gehrig years and the Joe DiMaggio years and the Lou Ger- uh, the Mickey Mantle years and the Babe Ruth years. When you go to the Horace Clark years, yeah, he doesn't belong in that company, but that's why it's not a fair, you know, it's not a fair name he doesn't deserve that is kind of the way I've always looked at it. Yeah, no, I would, I would definitely agree with that. The CBS years is really what it should be. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. That is absolutely the CBS years. All right, let's talk a little bit more about Horace Clark. And I am once again joined by Warren Rogan of Sports Forgotten Heroes, one of the big shows on the Sports History Network and a show that I've been a fan of for a couple of years now. Warren, thanks for joining us again. Absolutely. Anytime, Dan. So uh, Andrew and I just got finished talking about Horace Clark. And as Yankee fans, that is always an era, along with sort of the late 80s and early 90s, the the Steve Sachs, Kevin Moss years, the, the Horace Clark era is the other era sort of ever since Babe Ruth, really, that sticks out as a dark time in the years of the the otherwise vaunted history of the New York Yankees. You did a show on Horace uh, right around the time he passed away. What were some of the things that you learned there? Uh, You know, he was, 
he was quite the interesting character. I grew up in New York, in Westchester County, and we used to go to the stadium quite often. And you're right, that was during a t- period when the Yankees just weren't a very good ball club. I mean, they had Horace Clark, Celerino Sanchez, Jerry Kenny, Ron Blumberg. Um, and it was the Andy beginning Alomar of the, Sr. Yeah. I mean, it was the beginning of the career for Thurman Munson and Bobby Mercer was a star with the team. The Yankees, they just, they just weren't a very good team at that time. And Horace Clark, I think, was someone that the fans, for whatever reason, really latched on to. So in, in my world of podcasting, Sports Forgotten Heroes, he didn't necessarily fit the definition of a hero as far as what he did on the field. He was more of a hero as he was the just about the face of the franchise for whatever reason. And I can't remember why. You said he led the league in at-bats twice. Yeah, 641 in 1969 and 686 in 1970. I don't know what it was. He didn't bring a whole lot to the table, but (laughs) people went to the games to see Horace Clark. I think the Yankees thought he would be a lot more than he was. And, you know, they might have rushed him a little bit too. He wasn't born here in the States. Horace was born in Frederickstead, which is in St. Saint, I can't say this stuff, Dan, St. Croix. <laughs> it really interesting. He, he learned to play ball. Basically it was softball and um, he learned to hit the ball and he was discovered by a scout. I believe it was ha- uh, Howie Hack. He brought him here. The Yankees saw something in him. Like I said, they weren't a great team. They weren't the worst team. But, you know, the one thing he could do, he could swipe a base when needed. I think one of the other things that everybody might, from back then, might remember, for whatever reason, this guy wore his helmet on the field, too. Not just at the plate. He was always wearing his helmet. The negative about Horace Clark was pitchers thought he was soft. They didn't like the way he would turn a double play, and I, and I think that was a real knock against him. But, I mean, the guy was a solid player. He showed up to play every day. Career batting average was two fifty six. He wasn't a power hitter. He, he would get on base, though. He didn't strike out a lot, not a lot at all. He was just one of these guys that you showed up to play. The Yankees used to have bat day, and I have a younger sister, and I remember we went to bat day. And her bat was a Horace Clark bat. Yeah, bat day once upon a time was actual bats, not the, maybe not the little tiny oh, yeah, things no, that you get these now. Were, these were real wooden bats. You would never get one of those today. <laughs> My gosh, I, I couldn't imagine what could happen in the stands if you had a real bat day. But, you know, Horace, Horace was a, you know, he, was, he wasn't a bad player. He was a switch hitter. Not only did he take up the game late, but he learned how to switch hit. He was just a a, a solid, decent, all-around good player. But the Yankees, I, I wonder how how good a player he would have been had the Yankees surrounded him with better ball players. I think that's a good point. It wouldn't have been known as the Horace Clark era if he was terrible. He wouldn't have ever been on the team. So 
he sort of suffers from being one of the better players on a Yankee team that was the darkest period in the history of the franchise. The other thing that I thought was interesting, and this came from the show notes of your episode about him a few months back, he broke up three no hitters in the ninth inning, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, he was, um, like I said, he was, he was a good ball player. I I always go back to uh, the movie with Kevin Costner when he was the pitcher for the Tigers um, I forget the name of the movie. For the love of the game. For the love of the game. And he's throwing that no-hitter, and the manager of the Yankees says to this rookie, go out there and break it up. And I just, you know, I, I think of Horace Clark that way because he did. He broke up three no-hitters. You know, his rise to the majors, he didn't make it to the majors until he was 26. And it was this very deliberate rise. He played A ball double-A ball, triple-A ball, and he finally made it. And when he made it, he stuck. Um, but he he worked hard at the game. He also went to Puerto Rico, uh, which is where he met his wife, and he faced really good talent in Puerto Rico as well during the winters. He was just a solid ball player, and for whatever reason, I decided to do a podcast on him. I'm not sorry I did it, because <laughs> I certainly – learned a lot from him or about him. And, you know, he had a, a good career. He played 10 years in the majors. He was one of the better ball players on the Yankees when the Yankees were just not a good team. Heck, I think in 66, the Yankees fell all the way to last place for the first time since 1912. George Steinbrenner ultimately bought the team from CBS in 72 or 73, and he did a house cleaning, and he got rid of Horace Clark. He shipped him to the San Diego Padres. But Horace was um, Horace was the face of the franchise at that time. It definitely deserves to be remembered for more than just the namesake of an era of futility. Warren Rogan from Sports Forgotten Heroes, thank you again for joining us. You got it. Let's move on to somebody totally different, Lute Olson who was born in 1934 and passed away on August 27th. As head coach of the University of Arizona men's basketball team, Olsen appeared in four Final Fours and won the NCAA championship in 1997, defeating Rick Pitino's Kentucky Wildcats in overtime in the championship game. During his career, Olsen coached such future NBA players as Mike Bibby, Gilbert Arenas, Jason Terry, Steve Kerr, and Sean Elliott, as well as future MLB All-Star Kenny Lofton. Olsen's Arizona program became known as Point Guard U due to his effectiveness in developing players at that position, and he was inducted into the Basketball Hall of Fame in 2002. Those 90s Arizona teams, 90s and early 2000s, have kind of been, like, when I first started becoming aware of college basketball, they were a blue blood program. Like, they were up there with everybody else. They were the number one seed a lot of the time. You know, I, you mentioned that 97 championship game. That was actually, I remember watching that in a hotel because that was during the blizzard of 97. I also recall that. Yep, I remember watching that game. We lost power, so we went and stayed in a hotel. But they were, you know, they won the Pac-12 11 times, under Pac-10 at the time, 11 times under him, the regular season championship. Like you mentioned, four Five Final Fours and spread out, too. So 80, 1980, which I guess actually would have been when he was still with uh, Iowa. And then he won 
he got to four with Arizona, 88, 94, 97, and 01. To me, he always looked like the president, not a specific president, but like on the sideline, you know, college basketball, you get a lot of guys in sweaters and, and, you know, that kind of thing. But he always had like the dark jacket and the white shirt and like a red or blue tie. Like he always, and he's got the bright white hair. He always just kind of looked like presidential to me, but, you know, definitely a powerhouse program that, you know, wasn't, he didn't inherit a powerhouse program. He built a powerhouse program. There was one point guard that he had, a guy by the name of Jason Gardner in 2003, and he was their only point guard for decades who didn't get a single minute in the NBA. And you don't really, there's probably not a Hall of Famer on that list, but Mike Bibby, Gilbert Arenas, Jason Terry, Steve Kerr, those are all really, really solid. Those are all very, very solid NBA point guards who had a lot of big years in the NBA. Yeah. And I mean, that it's always kind of an unfair knock on college coaches when they talk about lack of success. Cause so few guys are successful in the NBA and a lot of them don't go to college or didn't go to college. Um, you know, you hear that with coach K where they're like, Oh, well, how many good pros is Duke? And it's like, well, that's it. They're totally different things, but to, you know, even though none of them were hall of famers to launch that many, successful pros for a long period of time. And at one position is it was obviously that wasn't a coincidence, whether it was him recruiting a certain type of guy or whether it was him developing a certain type of guy or what it probably was, was both. That's not a coincidence. And I just, I remember he was, he and his wife, Bobby, who passed away in January of 2001. And I remember when this happened, I remember it being a big story. They were married for 47 years. Basketball court at the school is named in both of their honor. And I just remember stories about how beloved she was in the program and on campus in addition to him. One of these guys who, sort of like the guy we're going to talk to next, is... We're going to talk about him. We're not going to talk to him. That's a good point. Not on these episodes. We won't be talking to any of the subjects. That's a good point. But um, just like John Thompson, who we're going to talk about in a minute... Lute Olson is so head and shoulders above anybody else like a John Wooden or a John Thompson or a Shashevsky, just so head and shoulders above everybody else associated with the program at Arizona. Exactly. Shall we move on to, because you teased it a little there, shall we move on to the next one? Absolutely. John Thompson, born in 1941, passed away on August 30th. Thompson played two years for Red Auerbach's Boston Celtics in the mid-1960s, winning a championship ring each year. But he is best known for his years as head coach of the Georgetown University Hoyas from 1972 to 1999. Thompson took Georgetown to three Final Fours and the 1984 National Championship, the first African-American coach to achieve those milestones. The popularity of Thompson's Georgetown teams is often credited for the birth and popularity of the Big East Conference in the 1980s. During his career, he coached a number of future Hall of Famers, including Patrick Ewing, Alonzo Mourning, Dikembe Mutombo, and Allen Iverson. All of whom speak glowingly about the impact that Thompson had on their lives. A guy who a lot of people, you don't realize that Thompson played a couple years in the NBA and he always spoke about what an influence and a mentor Red Auerbach was to him. And interestingly enough, a lot of people don't realize this about Red Auerbach, 
But even though Auerbach was this hero of the Celtics, he still lived in D.C. for his entire life. This is Auerbach I'm talking about. So I'm sure that during the heyday of Georgetown basketball in the 80s, there were plenty of opportunities for Thompson and Auerbach to meet and to interact. Brought the team to the Final Four three years out of four in the Patrick Ewing years. They won it in 84. In 85, was 85 when they lost to Villanova? Yeah. And 82 was when they lost to Michael Jordan's North Carolina team. So, and both of those games, both the UNC game and the 85 game against St. John's, not to mention, I'm sorry? 85 game against Villanova. The 85 game against Villanova, I'm sorry. And they had a great rivalry with St. John's. And I believe they played St. John's in the Final Four that year in 85. Played St. John's four times that year. They played them twice in the regular season. The first was the sweater game. And then the next game was when John Thompson wore the sweater. And then they played in the Big East Championship game. And then they played in the in the uh, national semifinals in the Final Four. Georgetown won the last three of them. The 1985 NCAA Finals is the heyday for the Big East. It is the golden moments. It was Georgetown over St. John's in one regional and then Villanova over Memphis State, who was obviously not in the Big East, in the other regional and then Georgetown against Villanova. So probably, and this was at the very beginning, this was in the first couple years of the Big East. And it was this moment when the part of the country that we're in, the New York, Philly, D.C., Boston era, was probably bigger in college basketball than it ever has been before or since. Yeah, and the or since is a key there too. There is a great HBO documentary. It's specifically on the 85 season and, you know, the Villanova. Villanova, but it also talks about Georgetown. Something a lot of people know about, especially if you're a certain age, but it sheds a lot of light on both of the teams. It's hard to underestimate or to overstate just how much of a cultural force those Georgetown teams was. And obviously Thompson was a huge part of that. This One of the things they talk about in this HBO documentary, which is over 10 years old now, but they talk about the starter jackets. And, you know, this was the time when merchandising was becoming a big deal. And the starter jacket, the gray Georgetown, some of them were navy blue, but there was also the gray one with the logo on the back became a huge, especially in the black community you know the raider raider gear was big and obviously several years later bulls gear was huge but georgetown was right up there in the 80s and early 90s but especially in the 80s you know they were considering it's a very sort of elite school in the dc area it became a huge touchstone of that basketball team became a huge touchstone of black culture in that era they only won the one championship, but you talk about 82 with Jordan and then 85 where Villanova basically had to play a perfect game to beat them. But from Ewing for them to then parlay it into the success in the, in the ensuing years. And even after he was gone from Georgetown, Thompson was still a huge figure. I remember seeing him in all kinds of Knicks games. He was very famously with the towel. There was a lot, 
a lot of coaches this year at the beginning of the year, especially the African-American coaches were wearing towels over their shoulders. Their first couple of games this year in tribute to John Thompson, those Georgetown teams were not universally loved. They played a very physical, oftentimes bordering on dirty style, which he was a proponent of. He didn't make any apologies for it. And I think that was, that's one thing when you're going to talk about the character of John Thompson is he was very clear on who he was and what he was doing. There was never any uh, apologizing or equivocating. That was actually the word I was just about to use is unapologetic. And that was both for good and for ill. Um, There was this whole idea, they call it the Hoya paranoia, which meant different things to different people. And one of the things that it meant was that John Thompson really sheltered his players, most of whom were, young black men from somewhat impoverished circumstances and sort of protected them from the press and from outside influences so much to the point that there's actually a legendary story in DC about him confronting a DC drug Lord because he felt that the guy was getting a little too close to some of his players and sort of asking him uh, very nicely, but very firmly to stay away from his players. And a lot of people think that if it had been anybody else, but John Thompson, uh, that person trying to confront that drug lord maybe wouldn't have walked out of that meeting. So I know that there was criticism later on that maybe his sheltering of his players and his sort of us against the world mentality maybe didn't necessarily help some of those players later on in their careers. And that's probably something that you can sort of see and argue both sides of, but I think unapologetic is definitely a good word for him, for him. And also just a damn good coach. Now as Nick fans, it can kind of make us feel a little bit sad that Patrick Ewing had his best years prior to even coming to the NBA. But those Georgetown teams of the eighties were really, really, really good. Oh yeah. I mean, they got the three championship games in four years. You can, Outside of the UCLA dynasty, it's hard to point to anyone who's done that. And when you talk about sort of the early stages of the Big East and the sort of the, I don't want to say heyday of college basketball, but you look at the teams, you know, look at the teams they played in those in those championship games. They played the UNC uh, Tar Heels with Michael Jordan. They beat the Houston Five Slamma Jamma team. And then in 85, it was Villanova, which was a huge upstart team, but they also had to get through St. John's, like you talked about. The east of that area, you also had Syracuse and, and just so many teams that were so good. Thompson was also the head coach of the 1988 uh, U.S. Olympic team, the last collegiate uh, team before the Dream Team four years later. And I think also just important, you know, he was always very outspoken about social and, and specifically racial issues, which we don't need to get too into, but I think it's an important facet of the specter of the man. Yeah, No, it was certainly a big part of who he was. The other thing that I would mention is, and as somebody who's, you know, you lived in DC for a couple of years, I've lived here for most of my adult life. When you think about DC and sports, you tend to think about things, you know, the nationals have been good. They won the world series a couple of years ago. The, the Capitals have been good. They won the Stanley Cup a couple of years ago. The Wizards have been fun. John Wall, Bradley Beal, Otto Porter, most of whom are gone now, but that's a different 
subject. Sports in D.C. in the 1980s was basically two things. There was no baseball. The Bullets were not good, and they played at a sort of rundown arena in Landover, Maryland. The Capitals also played at that arena. They were a little better. But sports in D.C. were basically the Redskins, who won three Super Bowls in what whatever it would have been nine seasons under Joe Gibbs, mm-hmm. and then John Thompson in Georgetown. And for a northeast city, which D.C. more or less is still a northeastern city, to have college basketball be, if at worst, the second most popular sport in the city – that's a really big deal. I mean, there's a Sports Illustrated cover with Patrick Ewing, Ronald Reagan, and Thompson. How many college basketball coaches have been on the front page of Sports Illustrated with a president of the United States? And I think all you all, all you need to look at is the fact that obviously this year being a different thing, but they play all of their games at the NBA arena, even back when it was the Capitol Center in Landover, but now that it's the was the Verizon and MCI and all the million things it's been, you know, Villanova doesn't do that in Philadelphia. Villanova plays a bunch of games at the NBA arena. They don't play all their games there. St. John's plays at the garden most of the time, but they've scaled that back. And also it's empty teams in the Northeast Boston college doesn't play at the, wherever the Celtics play, or if they do, it's once a year, you know, the fact that the, that Georgetown, they're a co-tenant in terms of percentage of games. They play them all there. That shows you where they are in the sporting landscape in the city. And it's hard to imagine that would have happened had it not been for John Thompson. I've been to many Wizards games, and I've been to quite a few Georgetown games as well. And for the most part, the crowd is much more into it at Georgetown games than they are at Wizards games, I can assure you. Let's move on to somebody completely different, and that is uh, a legend. Uh, These are all legends, but uh, somebody who's very much considered a legend in the New York area, and that's Tom Seaver, who was born in 1944 and passed away on August 31st. A three-time Cy Young Award winner, Seaver is the most beloved player in New York Mets history. His first Cy Young year came in 1969, the year that the Mets improbably won the World Series against the Baltimore Orioles in five games. Seaver led the league that year with 25 wins and was the winning pitcher in game four of the World Series. Seaver racked up 311 career wins and is sixth all-time in strikeouts. He was elected to the Hall of Fame in 1992 with 98.8% of the vote, a record that stood until the election of Mariano Rivera over 20 years later. You know, we talked about this. I don't know if we talked about it on the air. Um... I think we just talked about it personally, and we obviously talked a lot about Seaver in our first couple of episodes when we did the um, the all-time teams. There's not too many pitchers who are clearly the best player in their franchise's history. There's a few franchises where you can make an argument that it's a pitcher. Tom Seaver is clearly the best player in Mets history, and he was the Mets for a very long time. You know, When people talk about the Miracle Mets, they talk about Tom Seaver. I mean, sometimes you'll hear specific plays, Cleon Jones and things like that, but Seaver was the best player. There's no question. Everybody's favorite player back then was Seaver. You mentioned winning the Cy Young in 69, and then 71 was probably his best year statistically. 
20 and 10 with a 1.76 ERA, almost as good in 73 when they won the pennant with a 2.08 ERA. Just hard to overstate how beloved a sports figure he is in New York. New York tends to swallow people whole. Things just kind of fit into the firmament and you don't hear about it's tough for any one person to stick out. And Tom Seaver, as we saw when he passed away this year, is still that legend in New York sports, even among non-Mets fans. The fact that he's the fact that his pitching delivery is as famous as it is, that you saw the Mets honor him by rubbing the dirt on their knees. He was very, for anyone who doesn't know, he was very famous for what's known as the drop and drive, where he would get so low that his back leg would actually by the middle of the game be covered in dirt his knee especially because his knee would actually hit the mound as he pitched because of how low he got for a lot of years there were only three Mets retired numbers and that was Casey Stengel Gil Hodges and Tom Seaver and the only one of those who was a player was Tom Seaver. And so for a long time, he was the only Met in the Hall of Fame. He was the only Met to have his number retired. I think it's hard to overestimate just what a big deal Tom Seaver was to Met fans. He was sort of the answer that Met fans had to any sort of inferiority complex towards the Yankees because the Yankees had Ruth. They had, you know, DiMaggio and Gehrig and Mantle and all these championships, but they didn't have anybody who could be, who you could make a case for as the best pitcher of all time. And the Mets had that in Tom Seaver. Clendenin. Let's get Tom Seaver over here. Tommy, got to be a big thrill. Oh, the biggest ever. I tell you, that you believe in this? Look, here, my, one of my bobos right here. Let's go on, John. Just ripped that one pretty good there off the wall out in left center. Well, Lindsay, uh, this is the same ball club that been blown on the same field with the Baltimore Orioles, but we beat them. We showed them what we had, to, what type of ball club we had been all year. We, we, we're number one. They we're thought they're going to run us right off the field, and we come to play. This is a right. club that played the way this way all year long. We came from behind. We did it today, and you can't say too much. For you. Now, tell me, I want to ask both of you. Tell me, now, tell me sincerely, because I want to ask you this question. You're down three runs. What kind of feeling did you have at that time about your prospects of winning the ball game? We built it up all year long. It's been like that, Lindsay. No matter what happened, no matter where we were, we were down six nothing, and Pittsburgh came back and won that ball game because we never put our heads between our legs, and we always fought. And it's the greatest feeling in the world. Well, Lindsay, we're, we're the type of ball club that uh, scored late all through all during the year. We, we never give up. Uh, never. This is why we're here. We, we get behind three or four runs in the late latter part of the ball game. We come back. Congratulations to both of you. Both right. had a great year. We'll be back here in a moment. Again, the final score was the Mets 5, the Orioles 3. In a moment, we'll continue to review the events of today's game. Right when the sort of the, um, you know, all sports were shut down in the spring, show on WFAN in New York, one of the hosts, Joe Beningo, who's been a fan of, he's a Met, Jet, 
Nick and to a lesser extent Ranger fan, his co-host put together a bracket of the most painful sports memories of Joe Beningo's life. And they would ask him and then he would, you know, say which memory is is the most painful. And obviously it was a lot of on-field things, the Knicks losing the finals in 1994, the Jets losing an AFC championship game, et cetera. Tom Seaver getting traded to Cincinnati in 1977 was way up there to the point where I think it got to his final four. And, you know, there are Mets fans who are my age who were born 10 years after it happened, who still get frustrated when that gets brought up because it's so ingrained in sort of being a Met fan that even if you weren't alive for it, it causes you a little bit of pain that the Mets traded him to Cincinnati when he still, you know, he was in his, early thirties. He still had some really good years left with Cincinnati, won 16 games a couple of times in 78, 79, 81. He went 14 and two still had a lot of good years left with him. Ended up coming back to the Mets for a little while in 83, I believe. But, um, and then of course through the no hitter in Cincinnati. So, you know, still obviously he's known as a Met, he's famous as a Met, but did have good years after leaving the Mets, particularly with Cincinnati. Several interesting things from the end of his career. He is traded back to the Mets at the end of the 82 season and pitches the entire 83 season with the Mets. And he is 39 years old that off season. And the White Sox claim him as part of the free agent compensation draft and the Mets front office had put Seaver on that list of eligible players thinking that nobody would want to take somebody who was 39 years old and had such a high salary, but Seaver nonetheless gets picked, which is sort of crazy to think about because had it not been for that fact, he would have been on the team. He would have been a teammate of Doc Goodens in 1984, which would have just been wild to think about. And then there's at least a decent chance that he probably would have been on the team through 86, which would have just been crazy. And then ironically in 86 mid season, he, he gets traded from the white Sox to Boston and he, but he's injured. And so he doesn't pitch in the postseason. but he's on the bench in 86. When, as we were talking about before the red Sox lose to the Mets. So, and then the other thing that's interesting is that in, 85, he pitches his 300th victory at Yankee Stadium against the Yankees. So he sort of keeps coming back to the New York scene, even after he's gone from the Mets. Yeah, and stayed involved with the franchise for a while after that. He did some games as like a color commentator, right? He was he would do like a few games a year or like, you know, something. I don't think he was ever full time, but he would do a couple of games here and there with the Mets for all those years. And, uh, you know, up until towards when went out to California where he's from after retiring and I think became a big uh, vineyard owner, if I'm not yes. Um, you know, was kind of out of the public eye the last few years as he battled dementia, you know, definitely had a rich post-baseball career as well. Yeah, and he is an honest-to-God bona fide legend without question. Another guy who is a legend uh, is our next player, another baseball player. And Andrew, did you want to talk about him? Lou Brock, born in 1939, died on September 6th. 
Brock began his career with the Chicago Cubs, but was traded to St. Louis in 1964 for pitcher Ernie Brolio, one of the most lopsided trades in baseball history. That year, Brock helped lead the Cardinals to the National League pennant and a World Series victory over the Yankees. Another championship followed three years later in 1967. Brock led the league in stolen bases eight times and retired as the all-time league leader in stolen bases. He was Ernie Banks' roommate with the Cubs and then gets traded in 1964 for Ernie Broglio in, like like we said in the introduction, probably one of the most lopsided trades in baseball history. Kind of provides a spark to the Cardinals as they go on to win their first pennant since, uh, I guess it would have been since 1946, and then go on to upset the Yankees in the World Series in seven games in 1964. One of the best base stealers in MLB history and a guy who just was a legend, a Cardinals legend during probably the best era, or at least the best modern era in Cardinals history when they won two titles in 64 and 67. Yeah, you look at this picture as I'm looking at his Wikipedia page. The picture of him in a Cubs uniform is one I imagine annoys Cubs fans. <laughs> one thing I did want to mention, this will be fitting with me finding a way to mention this. As a, you know, he was really a speed, you know, base stealer, get on base, you know, hit a single or whatever and steal some bases, play some defense. That said, in 1962, as a member of the Cubs, he became one of only four players to hit a home run into the center field bleachers at the polo grounds. So this was early on in his career. He was not a power hitter. This was obviously when the Mets were, were at the polo grounds, but he uh, only one of four guys to ever hit one to that 483 and beyond bleachers at the polo ground. So just kind of a, a nice little uh, side note there, but um, yeah, certainly was a six-time All-Star, mostly in the early 70s, uh, won those two World Series, like you mentioned, led the league in stolen bases eight times, and, you know, one of the key figures of that Cardinals. I don't think you can call it a dynasty because they only won the two championships, but they were certainly at the top of the National League from the mid-60s to the early 70s. 118 stolen bases in 1974 only matched in the 20th century by Ricky Henderson with 130 in 1982. So a great player, a a Cardinals legend, and a guy who won a couple of championships on top of which. is still second all-time in steals, too, we should mention, which as steals become less of a part of the game, and, and, you know, things could always... I guess, shift back, but that seems unlikely anytime soon in terms of the value that's placed on steals at the moment in baseball is, is minimal. So he could be in second or, you know, third for quite some time because he's, well, he's second. The guy right behind him is Billy Hamilton who died and last played in 1901. So he could be number, he could be number two on that list for quite a long time. Reislevin looks, he's going, the pitch is high. Field, and all of the reporters, newspaper people for 
cartographers on the field, much reminiscent of the night he broke Maury Wills' record. So let's move on and talk uh, about Gail Sayers, who was born in 1943 and passed away on September 23rd. A member of the Pro Football Hall of Fame and the NFL 100th anniversary team, Sayers is considered a legend despite playing only 68 career games in seven seasons for the Chicago Bears. An All-Pro in each of his first five years, Sayers led the league in rushing twice and in all-purpose yards in 1966. He was also dangerous on kickoff returns, leading the league in that category three years in a row. Sayers' career was cut short after suffering a serious knee injury in a 1970 preseason game. Between the Bears and the 49ers, what they got was a slice of history. running back named Gail Sayers, number 40, scored six touchdowns in the most memorable one-man offensive spectacle in modern pro history. in pro football, but no one ever scored more touchdowns in more different ways in one game than Gale Sayers. While Sayers' performance was the best ever for a single game, O.J. Simpson... Sort of one of the great... I don't know if great's the right word to use, but sort of one of the biggest what-if stories in football... You know, you mentioned that he only played seven years, 65, 66, seven years. In that, short of a career, he still in 1969 won comeback player of the year after he came back from a, an injury in 1968 that cut his season short, or basically ended it. And really in 70 and 71, he only played in two games each year. So you're talking about five years, but five years that were so good that he was able to get into the hall of fame you just you watch him this will be a weird thing to bring up but i'll let you talk about the numbers and things there's there's a comedian named Patton oswalt who does a lot of i really like him but he, he does a lot of like star wars and food humor he's not a sports fan at all really i've never heard him talk about liking sports or anything i was listening to an interview with him one time where he said that one of the things he did before he would do stand-up was watch highlights of Gale Sayers. And at first I was like, where is he getting that from? And he said he just seeing somebody, I guess Gale Sayers is famous for the quote where he said, I only need six inches of daylight to, you know, find a hole, basically. Mm -hmm. And he just said that seeing somebody be that good at what they're doing somehow, even though it wasn't something he was particularly interested in, just motivated him for his comedy. And I just it's such a weird seven ten split, but I just always that helped me sort of, it's almost beautiful in a way. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And I think that the point about video is an important one more so than probably any other position player in the NFL, um, you know, skill player, running back, quarterback, receiver. 
he really has to be seen to be believed. The numbers don't really tell the tale. A guy who did it not only as a runner, but as a receiver and as a kick returner. Also, we talked about Bobby Mitchell last week and the fact that Mitchell was such a good returner on top of being a running back and later a receiver. Sayers had a lot of that as well in instant replay, which is uh, Jerry Kramer's diary of the 1967 Green Bay Packers season. He mentions how Lombardi warned them specifically before the game about how dangerous Gail Sayers was on kickoff returns. So a guy you just you I heard somebody describe him once as almost like an atom and he, somebody would be going to tackle him and he would split in two. So a guy whose career was way too short, a guy who much like Dick Buck, Dick Butkus never played in a playoff game, which is kind of interesting to think about, but probably more so than anybody else in the history of sports, at least in the modern era, a guy whose entire career was only really five or six years. The only one who I can think of as close was Sandy Koufax and that Koufax is a legend because of sort of five or six really good years. But Koufax had a career of seven or eight years before that. Sayers' entire career is that brief period where he sort of shot across the sky as a shooting star and then he was gone. And Koufax decided to stop, which was smart of him, but he could have kept going. And I feel like you also can't talk about Gail Sayers without talking about Brian's song mm-hmm. the movie that came out as a TV movie that came out in 1971 was fictionalized, but based on a true story, Sayers didn't play himself. He was played by Billy, Billy D Williams, but it was about him, uh, the relationship between Gail Sayers and Brian Piccolo, who came to the bears the same year he did as a rookie. Brian Piccolo tragically died very young. I think he died in 1970. Um, and, you know, it's a movie where if you're a guy of a certain age, it's a very sort of emotional movie about their friendship during their careers, both of which cut were cut short, obviously, for very different reasons. Um, and there's the famous quote in the movie by Sayers, played by Billy D. Williams, where he says, I love Brian Piccolo. Might even be the might even be the first line of the movie. So that's certainly part of the f- sort of history of Gale Sayers that needs to be mentioned, even though it was a movie. We're talking about Gale Sayers and his legacy as one of the great running backs of all time. Darren Hayes is joining me now. He hosts the Pigskin Dispatch show on the Sports History Network. And Darren's show is a unique one. It's a daily podcast, which covers the anniversary of football history events on a daily basis. Thank you for joining us, Darren. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Do you want to, before we talk about Sayers, do you want to tell us a little bit about your podcast on the Sports History Network? Yeah, uh, what we try to do is every we try to bring football history every day to our listeners. Uh, we're having quite a big listenership around the world, and uh, it's uh, becoming quite popular. So um, every day, the football events that happen on that particular date we're talking about, you know, if we're talking about, you know, January 15th, we have all the football events from January 15th. It gets challenging for some times of the year, but there's football history unbelievably all year, 366 days in the year, February 29th or some. So uh, we're, we try to do that and bring it to the viewership. And you do both pro and college, right? Yes, uh, we do all levels. If we can find some high school, uh, we'll do that. We'll get into the CFL. 
uh, everything. So NCAA, NFL, all of the football leagues in between. Well, I've checked out a few episodes and I, I've really enjoyed it. We're really sort of building up our array of shows on the Sports History Network. So it's really a, an exciting time to be a part of it. And we want to thank you all for listening, obviously. So Darren's here to talk about Gail Sayers. Why don't you sort of just give me your general impressions? What makes Gail Sayers such a legend? Well, I want to, if I could, I'd like to start off with a personal experience I had with Gail Sayers. Absolutely. Now, now I don't remember Gail Sayers playing. I was about, he was playing about when I was born. So, but when I was, uh, he was retired. He retired in 1970, I believe. And this was probably the early 80s. He came to my hometown of Erie, Pennsylvania, and was at a, a banquet for uh, giving out sporting awards. He was a guest speaker. And the night before that, I was working at a local restaurant, and some of the uh, people that were hosting the event brought Gail Sayers in to have dinner and to discuss some things for the next night. And I, I recognized him because I had actually done a book report on his book, I Am Third, uh, which inspired the Brian Song movie. And so I was, kind of, I was familiar with him. I recognized him, and I got the gumption up. I was a, a lowly busboy at the restaurant. I got the gumption up and I went and I, I asked him for his, uh, I told him I read his book and I asked him for his autograph and he was such a kind man. He got up from the dignitaries he was with, went over to another empty table, had me sit down with him, signed the autograph, asked me, you know, a couple questions about I am third. Of course I was all, you know, giddy as anything you know having a celebrity football player you know talking to me Absolutely. and uh he he just took spent the time with me and it just showed what a good quality person he was and his book i am third the whole premise was that he is that he always said god is first my friends and family are second and i am third and that's and like i said the brian song movie came out of that his relationship with brian piccolo out of that so a great great individual person and i can tell you that from personal experience Wow. That is, it, it is always nice when you meet an athlete and they, or any celebrity, I guess, when, and they end up being nicer in person than you might expect them to be. And it's impressive enough when you have some shortstop that hits 220 or some guy who played offensive guard for a few years. But Gail Sayers, I mean, that's a, that is a top tier legend. So to have him be so down to earth and take such an interest in a fan so long after his playing days. That's really impressive. Yeah, it was. It really was. So as a player, and Andrew and I were talking about this just a minute ago, he probably, I'm trying to think if there's anybody else in, in football or really in any American sport who not only starred for so little time, but also played for so little time. You have some guys who maybe you – they have long careers, but then they're really good for a few years. Sayers was really good for a couple of years, but that was really his whole career. Oh, absolutely. I mean, but he came on strong in the NFL right out of the shoot. His rookie season of 1965, I believe he still has the touchdown records for a rookie in the NFL with 22, and only 14 of those were rushing. I, th I think he had six receptions and two uh, kick returns for touchdowns for a total of 22. So it's, it's amazing that he had that. And he also had that phenomenal game that happened on December 12th of that year, which we cover in the football history headlines on the Pigskin Dispatch. It's uh, six touchdowns in one game as a rookie. And, uh, you know, four touchdowns rushing with only nine carries. 
Wow. And he had a kick kick return and, uh, you know, I, I think he had two kick returns in that game. That was just two kick returns that season. That's something that you don't see in football really anymore, which or really that you didn't even see much of then, but that you certainly don't see anymore where a guy who is a star offensive player, I'm talking about a star, mm-hmm. who also is such a threat on kick returns. I'm, I'm a Giant fan, and I know once in a blue moon, the Giants used to maybe throw Beckham back there to return a kick when they right. really needed a spark, but he wasn't in there every single return. Gail Sayers, as good of a running back as he was sort of in the historic echelon, he's probably almost just as good, if not better, as a returner. Oh, absolutely. He was, uh, he was sort of like, if you watch some of the video clips of him, um, he's just sort of a grace on the football field. You know, I've heard people describe him, you know, Billy D Williams was recanting that he had to study, uh, some of the mannerisms to play Gale Sayers in the movie Brian song. And Billy uh, D Williams says he is like a ballet dancer. That's what he was on the football field. That's what um, Billy D Williams's perception of him was. And he's probably right. Cause he was so graceful and could spin on a dime. I mean, his cutback runs are just in a phenomenal and his vision of seeing holes. I mean, I, I don't know if there's anybody maybe shy of like a, a Barry Sanders that, that does the remarkable things that he did. And he did it in such a short span. It's uh, really quite remarkable. And he upheld a great tradition going almost back to the beginning of the NFL of these legendary Bears running backs, Red Grange, Bronco Nagurski, and then Sayers, and then later Walter Payton, I think all of whom – well, maybe not Peyton, but all of whom were coached at one point or another by George Hallis, which is crazy to think about as well. Yeah, it sure is. Uh, the other thing that's kind of crazy about Sayers is his legacy is sort of tied to Dick, Buck- Dick Buckus. Yes. They were both first-round picks by the Bears, top five picks by the Bears in 1965, his draft. Uh, Buckus was the number three overall. He was uh, he got a trade. The Bears traded with the Steelers the year before. I think they gave him like a, a second round, a fourth round pick uh, to get that, that first round number three pick. I'm a Steelers fan, so I'm kind of embarrassed about that. <laughs> and then the very next pick, number four, they get Gale Sayers. I mean, that, that's an unbelievable draft. Uh, another thing that I saw in the research on this, with those two on the field for the five or six years that they played together, the Bears only had one winning season and never made the playoffs. That's that's yeah. an astounding fact, too. Yeah, no, it really is. And that that is sort of a crazy thing. I guess you can wonder if Sayers had played longer, maybe they would, you know, maybe at one point they would have made the playoffs. But even then, a career as a running back was so short. Uh, one final question. I actually have never seen Brian's song. Have you seen it? Oh, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Not recently. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's funny. My dad uh, was, I think that came out, I don't know, Brian's song came out sometime probably in the early 70s, I think. And my dad was in high school. And he talked about how he, you know, he was watching it and, you know, he was tearing up. And then the next day talking to his friends in school and all of them saying, yeah, no, I was tearing up. So it was, you hear that story a lot about how even, 
teenagers, teenage boys, tough guys were tearing up over that movie. Uh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, my father, who I watched the movie with, I believe at the theater, he, I, I can remember him telling me there's only two movies in his life he's ever cried over. Brian's Song and Old Yeller. That's the only <laughs> two movies. <laughs> so. Jeez. Wow. Well, yeah, a great player and a great, a great legacy and just somebody who, among the many other great athletes that we lost this year, he's one of those that you know, even stands above those as a real all-time legend. So, Darren Hayes, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, please check out the Pigskin Dispatch. Most of the podcasts on the Sports History Network, you can only get them once a – you can only get those once a week, but he's up there every day. So, Darren, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Dan. Why don't we do one more and let's talk about the legendary Bob Gibson. And I believe, is it, it's your turn. Okay. Bob Gibson, born in 1935, passed away on October 2nd. Gibson pitched 17 years in the major leagues, all with the St. Louis Cardinals. Known for his seriousness on the mound and his willingness to throw at batters, Gibson saved his greatest performances for the postseason, pitching eight complete games in nine World Series starts and setting a record with 17 strikeouts against the Detroit Tigers in game one of the 1968 World Series. An all-around athlete who once played with the Harlem Globetrotters, Gibson won nine gold gloves and even hit two home runs in World Series play. His 1968 season, in which he pitched 13 shutouts and had an ERA of 1.12, is considered one of the greatest single-season pitching performances in baseball history. And after 1968, the pitching mound was lowered to make it a little bit easier on the hitters. After 1961, when Mantle and Maris and everybody else hit all these home runs, they decided to widen the strike zone. I think they made a few other changes to make it easier on pitchers. And so from 62 to 68, you have what's called this sort of golden age of pitchers. And it culminates in 1968, which is referred to by a lot of people as the year of the pitcher. It was the year that Denny McLean won 30 games for the Tigers, the last major league pitcher to win 30 games. And I would imagine probably we'll never see another pitcher win 30 games. And that was matched in the National League by Bob Gibson, who had this season of 1.12 ERA and a just an incredible 13 shutouts. So you figure 22 wins, 13 shutouts, more than half of his wins were shutouts. And he won both the Cy Young and the MVP for the first year for the first time in that 1968 season and also went on to play in the world series and they lost to the tigers in seven games, but through no fault of his own because he was two and one in the world series with a 1.67 ERA and pitched 27 innings. So I, I I believe that was, that was three more complete games right there. He pitched 81 total world series innings. And I know I said he pitched eight out of his nine were, complete game so one of those games must have gone into extra innings but postseason which is all world series games i have his game lock 64 was the one that he didn't so the 64 world series against the yankees 
Uh, his first World Series start in Game Two, he only pitched eight innings, and they lost. They lost eight to three. He only pitched eight innings. Then his next start was Game Five. He put he pitched a complete game, ten innings. So there's your there's your discrepancy there. Yep, they won five to two. Then in Game Seven, he pitched a complete game. They won seven to five. And then in '67, they were all complete game, nine innings, and he let up one run, zero runs, and then two runs. And then in '68, again, all complete games, four nothing, ten one, and then in Game Seven, lost four to one. Really, sort of came into his own in '64, which was the first year they went to the World Series. Also, the year that they traded for Lou Brock had a really good relationship with Johnny Keene, who was the manager of that team in '64. He had had some conflict with previous managers, and for whatever reason, had a really good relationship with with Johnny Keen. He Keen was really good at understanding not just the young player, but the young black player. And Gibson was just a dominant pitcher, serious on the mound. I remember in the Ken Burns baseball documentary, uh, Roger Angel was talking about Bob Gibson and he was listing all of these attributes. And at the very end, he just goes, he was never pleasant. He was just a guy who he'd throw at you. He'd throw at his old roommate. He would throw at anybody. I think he said one time, I rarely threw at a batter, but when I did, I hit him. And so it was a different era. Oftentimes when you hear fans lament the current state of baseball and guys not being able to be thrown at, a lot of times fans of a certain age will throw around Bob Gibson's name as part of this kind of golden age of when pitchers were enforcers on the mound. Yeah, I, I do think a little bit too much of that gets romanticized. I think you could play, say plenty of nice things about Bob Gibson and how great a pitcher he was and how dominant he was without the second, third, fourth, and fifth things you say being about how often he would throw at guys, you know, <laughs> but it is a part of it. Um, some of the funny things you hear is about Tim McCarver used to tell a lot of good Bob Gibson stories because McCarver was his catcher for most of those years. The story where McCarver went out to him, Johnny Keene sent McCarver out to the mound and Gibson said, what are you doing here? Just give me the ball. The only thing you know about pitching is that it's hard to hit. <laughs> so, you know, and, and another thing about uh, Gibson, you know, pitched until, let me pull my original stats back up, pitched until 75, as late as 73 at 37 years old, was still pitching to a sub three ERA. In 73, he was 12 and 10 with a 2.77. And even in 74, he was below 500, still made 33 starts in 1974 at 38 years old with a 3.83 ERA, which was well off of his peak but was still a good year and then 75 was his last year where he really struggled but you know pitched until he was almost 40 years old and a guy who stayed friends with his catchers he was friends with McCarver he and McCarver were good friends for life and then he and Torrey he and Joe Torrey who was another one of his catchers in St. Louis were also good friends and Gibson ended up following Torrey to New York Atlanta and St. Louis and he was Torrey's pitching coach with all three of those teams. I had no idea he was a pitching coach after that. I really I'm just learning this for the first time. Nope. I'm actually shocked by that. He wouldn't seem like he'd have had the temperament for that. And also what they always say about, you know, great pitchers that they weren't, you know, 
they're often not the best pitch uh, coaches. I don't think he was, and obviously like everybody, he mellowed with age, I'm sure. I don't think he was as sort of surly of a guy off the field as he was on the field. A lot of times you'll have guys who they're, you know, they seem like exciting, fun guys on the field and then off the field, they're jerks. Gibson, I think in somewhat was some ways was almost the opposite of that. And that he actually wasn't that bad of a guy off the field. Yeah. I, I just, from like a patient standpoint, mm-hmm. but, but I, I, I legitimately did not know that, but you know, he goes up there in the firmament of best he he's got numbers you can compare to the guys in the dead ball era that show and i mean i know what you want to say with like okay in the 60s -hmm. pitching was was the first rule change in a long time to favor pitchers but i mean he's got numbers some of those years comparable to guys when krillick to christy matthewson numbers where normally you look at them and you're like ah you can't really compare the eras you could compare some things that that bob gibson did in 1968 to stats guys had in 1906 and he did have some mediocre regular seasons, but he also had some great regular seasons. And he also had just the dominant, dominant, dominant pitching performances in three different World Series. You know, and they always talk about in 67 how the Red Sox under with Yastrzemski were considered this team of destiny, another Red Sox team that was expecting to to break the the drought break the curse and then they ran into gibson in the 67 world series and it was just it was over mm-hmm. and then not a bad not a bad hitter uh had five home runs one year hit a home run in the world series lifetime batting average 206 he had you know 20 20 rbis one year and you figure this is a guy who was only batting in a fifth of the games. So fourth then. Yeah, but that's true. That, it, it, a f- yeah. More like a fourth there. That's a good point. Yeah, so he did, he, that year he pitched in 41 games, the year he had the 20 RBIs, but you figure if you extrapolated that out, that's 80 RBIs for a season. There's, there's a lot of infielders in those days who didn't have 80 RBIs. So no, you're right. And, and he also, I think just to kind of sing his praises one more time, he won one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine gold gloves. So a great athlete is probably is demonstrated by the fact that he started his sports career with the Harlem Globetrotters. <laughs> All right. So a lot of, a lot of legends uh, that we talked about tonight, whether it's Gibson, Sayers, Seaver, Wes Unseld, a lot of guys who are at the very, very top, very top sort of the pinnacle of the pantheon of their sports. And we have, a few more of those coming up next week, including uh, Whitey Ford, Joe Morgan. We'll talk about Paul Horning and Herb Adderley, a couple of other 60s Packers who passed away this year. And then we also have some lesser-known figures in one regard or another. So thank you all for joining us. Andrew, anything to add before we sign off for the night? No, I think we, uh, we talked about a lot of guys today and uh you know certainly went long on some of them and um you know hopefully this is one that we don't have to do a take two of in a couple of days i think Um, we're good all right so yeah we got uh got a handful of guys left and i know you have some ones to add to the list for for folks who've unfortunately passed away in the last few uh few months i will or a few weeks rather i will point out that as of now it does appear that we're getting a significant amount of snow so like i mentioned when we started waiting on the snow to come and it has arrived.
There you go. Well, it's in some ways it is a white Christmas Eve because while it is not Christmas Eve right now, by the time this airs, it will be Christmas Eve. So I hope you all are enjoying your Christmas Eve. Merry Christmas to you all. And we will talk to you again on New Year's Eve with the part three of the In Memoriam special. And uh, until then, I'm Dan Newman. And I'm Andrew Newman. Goodbye, old sports. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Join George Bozica, the president of the PFRA, and myself, John Bozica, each month for the Professional Football Researchers Association official podcast. We'll discuss the history of the game, the many names of the game, and so many different things for you, making the history of football not only entertaining, but fun at the same time, as we join you on the Sports History Network on the official PFRA podcast. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.